0: Welcome to the Basic Scotland podcast series. These are brief snapshots of topics relevant to pre-hospital care, predominantly within Scotland, and some deep dives into specialist areas with experts from a wide range of disciplines. My name is Dave Strachan. I'm an army surgical registrar, a basics responder, and a mountain rescue doctor. We at Basic Scotland are very grateful to NHS Education for Scotland for all of their support with these podcasts. Joining us today, we have Dr. Tim Lewenberg. Tim is a rural generalist based on a pretty enticing-sounding Kangaroo Island in South Australia. He also works as a retrieval consultant in Northern Territory. Uh, he's the chair of Sampiper Australia, which we're going to talk more about later. He's the treasurer of the Safe Airway Society. And, you know, in his spare time, he's a GP, he's a fellow in remote rural medicine. He's involved in some obstetrics, some anesthesia, and some pre-hospital care. So he's a, a master of all trades, from the sounds of it. Tim, thanks for coming on.
1: Pleasure to be here, Dave. Thanks for having me.
0: I guess the obvious place to start is, how have you ended up doing what you're doing? Because you didn't start like this.
1: No, no, no. I've got the best job in the world, I reckon. And it's something I had no exposure to. I trained in the UK and did my intern year or pre-reg house job in the UK. Went over to Australia and started training as an emergency and intensive care trainee and it was about four years into this that I realized there was this thing called access block I'm sure you guys have it in the UK as well the fact that the back of the hospital was so full of patients waiting to be discharged that the ED becomes this huge melting ground of of every patient who needs to be seen and is waiting for a bed and I just couldn't face that walk of shame I'd finish my shift I'd I'd go home I'd come back 12 hours later and I'd see the same patient still sat there so my wife and I ended up taking a holiday to a place called Kangaroo Island off the coast of South Australia we'd never been before we drove around in our camper van and we ended up at the end of five days buying ourselves 100 acres on the coast with a house for this ridiculously dirt cheap price And we sort of used it as a respite for a few years from the the travels of emergency medicine training. And it was when I saw my consultant punch the wall in the ED with frustration over Access Block, I realized that was going to be my future. I was going to be a fat, angry man who had no control over his destiny. So I I spoke to the guys on Kangaroo Island, the, the doctors there, and said, look, what do you guys do your gps how does that work and they said yeah yeah, yeah. look um why don't you just join us today? the day? you know it'd be great fun muck in and i thought well, that would be hilarious let's give it a go um they said yeah we're going to do a cesarean section in about an hour Do you want to scrub in <laughs> I'm like, yeah that, that, that's great um so so who's the obstetrician and they looked at me like i was crazy and said well i am you know you, the doctor i was speaking to was going to be the obstetrician so i'm like okay who's the anesthetist and he's like that's my colleague And I'm like, but you guys are GPs. And they're like, but we have to do this. This is our calling. So I guess looking back, sort of trained in the UK, coming out and working in tertiary hospitals, I had this idea that GPs sat in clinics and just wrote scripts and saw coughs and colds. And what I've realised is in rural Australia, and probably up in the the remote Scotland uh, Islands, you have these jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none, these rural generalists, who are not only trained in primary care, but also emergency medicine, and often a procedural specialty like obstetrics, anaesthesia, or surgery. And over the course of 15 years, that's what I've become. I've morphed into a, a rural generalist. So not just a GP, something a little bit more, the Swiss Army knife of medicine. (laughs)
0: <laughs> what does a day look like for you then i guess it's it's pretty varied
1: uh look it is i've got a guilty secret dave i've, I've sort of semi-retired now so i'm 54 years old and i'm retiring off to do things that interest me now but look at a typical day for a rural generalist is at the hospital for a morning ward round seeing the patients that you've admitted yourself would typically have them in a, a hospital for five days that usually people recovering from things like COPD, mild angina, etc. or surgical procedures. Then it's down to the clinic, flat out consulting. If you're on call, you'll be going back up to the hospital to deal with any emergencies that may present. And if you're lucky enough to have a day in theatre, then you'll either be delivering babies, doing scopes or giving anaesthesia for the same. And then of course, there's the on call components, which is on call for either emergency anaesthesia or obstetrics. And many of us are also involved in providing pre-hospital care to our communities, but in a very unstructured way. We haven't really got the well-developed systems that we have in the UK. With basics, for example, we don't have those sort of schemes across the majority of Australia.
0: It's interesting. I often spend time on this podcast talking to folk either from England or from the Central Belt, and I whinge on about the fact that our timelines are long outside of the Central Belt in Scotland, and stuff's on a whole different level for you
1: in terms of you mean pre-hospital care or just in, the day-to-day stuff day
0: in terms of pre-hospital care and the timeline of getting somebody from point of injury to the definitive management
1: yeah absolutely so look even where i am on Kangaroo island this is uh, an island that's 150 by 100 kilometers in size and we cover the whole lot so you know i might be driving to a job that would take me an hour to arrive that's not uncommon i guess for I'm sure much of Scotland as well, but as we go further into Australia, particularly into the outback, the distances are truly phenomenal. The archetypal high-speed rollover is what we see up in the Northern Territory. Often people unrestrained, driving at high speed, on often dirt roads, swerving to avoid wildlife. They'll have five people in a high-speed rollover. They may not be found for three, four, five hours. When they are found, it's probably another hour to get to some form of mobile coverage, and then we have to activate some sort of response, and in the territory that's usually fixed-wing response, using the Royal Flying Doctor Service as a transport platform. Even for a priority one job, our spin-up time is 45 minutes to get airborne. We have to land at the nearest available airstrip, and then often it's another travel by ute or troopie to the scene so often major trauma road trauma we won't be on scene for probably three to four hours from activation and some of the locations out on those remote farms some of which are the size of England it can take us 24 hours to get there people may have to travel across swamps they may use a staging with a little bell helicopter to get people from a to b we may not be able to land on strips because of weather conditions or because they're not rated for night. So yeah, I think the longest primary trauma I had was 26 hours from time of to us arriving.
0: That's pretty incredible. And I would imagine it, it hugely changes what you see in terms of injury, because you're seeing every injury at a very different stage in that inflammatory cycle. And in terms of the mortality risks are then evolving a lot as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's no such thing as a golden hour, is there? These people are often medically unwell by the time we get to them. Yeah, they may have a degree of uh, SERS setting in. And again, I hate to say it, but certainly in Central Australia, particularly the indigenous population, these are people who have a fairly poor baseline, often malnourished. Rheumatic heart disease is endemic, so there's a lot of valvular heart disease, which complicates the physiology a fair bit. And of course, we often have people with chronic kidney disease dialysis is not uncommon for people in the 20s in central Australia so yeah mix all that in with good going trauma it certainly makes very very challenging medicine
0: and presumably you know, getting there is only half of the problem you have then got to transport an unstable patient over a prolonged distance potentially multiple modalities of transport to get them back to a hospital exactly
1: that yeah and when we get back to a hospital alice springs is the central hospital the the main hospital in central australia but of course it doesn't have neurosurgical capabilities so whilst the surgeons can maybe decompress a an extra dual for more complicated care and same with orthopedic we'll be then on transferring these patients down to adelaide or occasionally up to darwin that's a, a two kilometer trip So we may retrieve these patients to to a hospital, stabilize them in theatre, they'll stay a day in ICU, and then we'll continue to package and transport them down to one of the tertiary or quaternary centres, often interstate, which is absolutely phenomenal when you think about it.
0: I would imagine that has a big impact in terms of of survivability and in terms of you're obviously not going to see catastrophic hemorrhage because they've died of that long ago and you're presumably not going to see your acutely unstable airways because they've also died and your breathing problems are probably going to be pretty pretty much toast by the time you get there as well so the package of trauma you see is then very different i would imagine
1: You'd think so, wouldn't you? But even last month, we had a traditional spearing in one of the remote communities. And once it took our registrar two hours to get to the scene, he pretty much has exsanguinated as the team arrived. So they're managing a traumatic cardiac arrest in a remote community. So, yeah, occasionally we'll sort of see that physiology still evolving, the same with the, the threatened airway. So, yes, it's it can be a little bit binary, but we still see a fair degree of complicated stuff. And as I mentioned, often these people become medically unwell uh, during all of that.
0: I, I do like the idea of a traditional spearing as opposed to one of these newfangled spearings.
1: Absolutely, yes. <laughs> but, you know, this is serious stuff. Again, they'll slash the teal and the femoral triangle and yeah this is one form of payback for people who do the wrong thing in the communities
0: yeah that's definitely going to be a fairly high intensity job how is pre-hospital care obviously you've got the flying doctor's service how is pre-hospital care structured at a more low level in australia
1: yeah, so World Flying Doctor Service is the largest aeromedical retrieval service in Australia, and it's got bases in each of the states, and that's predominantly a fixed-wing response. Now, of course, we've also got state-based ambulance services, and they'll often have a retrieval service, which is using various transport platforms, rotary wing, fixed wing, and, of course, um, road ambulance to respond to the scene. Most of these retrieval services are based in the capitals, which... Of course follow the coast really in australia so your adelaide your melbourne's your sydney's and your brisbane's one of the problems of course is that these retrieval services have a very high level of care very tight clinical governance um, you'll be familiar with of course london hems and the emrs in scotland the problem is of course it takes them a long time to arrive and helicopters are fantastic but they're, they're no good for people who are out of the city in regional and remote australia so What we do have, of course, is the rural doctors, the rural journalists like myself, often who are providing emergency care and anaesthesia services in their local hospital, and what we're trying to do is to tap into them to use them as a rural responder network. It's something we've been talking about in this country now for the best part of a decade, and it never ceases to amaze me that the UK has basics, New Zealand has something called Prime but Australia, with its tyranny of distance, doesn't really have those well-developed systems. With the exception of South Australia, the state I'm in, we have over 10 years now had a system to integrate the rural doctors into the ambulance service, carrying a pager, carrying standardised equipment and having standardised training. So that works quite well. But we're trying to get the other states up and running, and that's really why Sandpiper has evolved here.
0: I wanted to come to Sandpiper because, obviously, there's a a close link with the Sandpiper charity that we have here in Scotland. Tell me how Sandpiper Australia evolved and came into being. Yeah, it was pretty much out of frustration. us rural doctors in our communities
1: would see time and time again occasions where retrieval services would take a long time to arrive and the local doctors weren't being called to value add on scene. And this is quite frustrating, particularly because we're in mesh in our communities, so we, we often know the patients who are injured uh, very well. They're people we may play squash with, or they may be a bank manager, or our kids go to the same schools. So we've been talking to the Retrieval Services saying, look, we, we really need a system to incorporate the, the primary care team into this sort of response. But unfortunately, we sort of fell foul of that, but you guys are just GPs mentality. So we haven't had much traction growing it top down so in frustration we decided to set something up bottom up the rural doctors would establish their own networks and we started looking around the world seeing who else was doing this and of course the sandpiper trust in scotland leapt out at us they've got 20-year track record now of doing this and they've got a fantastic model of community fundraising to equip clinicians And I'm so delighted that two years ago the Sandpiper board approved us to use their name, use some of the IP, and to start ourselves as Sandpiper Australia, a charity to equip rural doctors with a standardised Sandpiper bag and kind of grow this thing bottom up.
0: I guess it's probably worth just mentioning for folk that haven't come across Sandpiper, because I know we've got a, a listenership that's outside of Scotland as well. Sandpiper is a charity that works kind of hand in glove with Basic Scotland. So the training comes from Basic Scotland, and then clinicians apply to Sandpiper and are issued with a bag and connected into the ambulance service network so that they can then be used by the ambulance service as, a, as an asset in remote and rural Scotland. And the Sandpiper Trust then provides that sort of ongoing resourcing and restocking, but is also involved in looking after the clinicians who are, who are then going out on the road and, and doing jobs. And... Uh, has that model translated entirely to Australia?
1: Look, it's early days, and I think you know that's why it's really interesting to look at where Sandpiper Scotland is now, but where they were twenty years ago. At the moment, Sandpiper is tightly integrated with Basics. It's a very well-established model. I understand that often ambulance are asking for the Sandpiper clinician very early in, in activation, but my understanding is 20 years ago it wasn't quite like that. There was probably a degree of hesitancy, and I think that's where we're at in Australia at the moment. There's a little bit of uncertainty about how best to use the the rural Jemblis cadre, but we're beginning to get some good runs on the board now we've got interest from the western australia st john's which is the ambulance service for the entire state of western australia and to put that in perspective that's a, a state about the size of france and spain combined it's absolutely massive so they're keen to get the rural generalists on board and we've also got the royal flying doctor service now uh, keen to co-brand the bags with us and the royal flying doctor services are a such a well-established charity that they're quite keen to push some funds our way and to get these sandpiper bags out into the communities that they service, which is basically the whole of rural and remote Australia.
0: Fantastic. One of the advantages of the sandpiper bag is that you've got a standardised set of equipment with which you can do quite a bit of stuff. But I would imagine that that standardising and trying to assure clinicians is going to be very difficult for you guys, given how widely spread you are and how enmeshed you are in your communities. Trying to get folk away for training courses is going to be pretty challenging.
1: Yeah, look, it's not uncommon. Because of our diverse skill sets, we're very much accustomed to travelling up to Metro to do a clinical attachment in obstetrics, anesthesia, or emergency medicine. That's part and parcel of it. Our College of Rural Remote Medicine has established a FEC course, so a pre-hospital emergency care course. We're using the Sandpiper bag as the focus of that, and we've pumped through about 70 clinicians in the past 12 months. And again, it's early days. We've got plans to upscale that significantly. Once this COVID thing is over and done with, at least a little bit more stable. So, yes, the the training will be provided by Akram, the bags by the Sandpiper Australia charity. And then the integration with ambulance services, I think it's going to be different in different localities. So what works in Western Australia will be probably quite different to what happens in Queensland. And I imagine it's the same as the the various schemes that fall underneath the, the basics umbrella in the UK.
0: I think there's quite a difference, and you, you build up a bit of a relationship as well with dispatchers and with local crews, whereby either the crews will ask for the clinician that they know, or dispatchers will ring up and say, I know you may maybe not booked on shift, but I wondered if I could run a job past you, and that relationship evolves over time and hopefully ends up being productive in terms of the patient care.
1: So I think it's really important about relationships in, in rural Australia, the ambulance service particularly as you go further and further away from the metro areas is more likely to be led by volunteers so these are local shopkeepers farmers housewives who bravely put their hand up and volunteer to go on the ambulance service now it's a professional service delivered by volunteers Uh, they can place an eye gel they can defibrillate and they can use medications like glucagon adrenaline uh, midazolam and penicillin They do have fairly low treatment ceilings, so I think it's really important that the relationships between them and their own GP is already there and can be harnessed and built upon through training at a local level. Now we know historically across Australia that ambulance services have been calling out the GPs from their clinics to attend responses, but the problem is this happens in an unstructured way. GP might rock up wearing board shorts and thongs with no equipment and frankly not be much help other than the pair of hands. So what we're trying to do with Sandpiper is standardise the equipment and standardise the training so they really can value add
0: and not replace the existing volunteer-led service. Fantastic. I should probably point out for listeners in the UK that the uh, the thong referred to is is likely to be a flip-flop rather than maybe the UK definition of a thong, which might be even less appropriate as PPE.
1: Yeah, it does get hot out
0: here, but you're right. Yes, we like to arrive fully dressed. (laughs) The other thing that has been forced by necessity in Scotland is that from the very outset, we've had paramedics and nurse practitioners and uh, nurses of a wide variety of bases involved, because in our island communities particularly, they're often the only clinician on the island. Now, I know the model is very different in Australia, but is there scope for multidisciplinary involvement? absolutely
1: i think that's so important and it's the same here in australia particularly in western australia the northern territory we have a, a clinician called a remote area nurse and he or she is often embedded in a community often small communities two or three hundred people often two or three hundred kilometers away from the next community and they're responsible for all of the health care it's a hugely challenging task not only if they provide primary care services but they so we'll jump in the back of a troopie a form of essentially a toyota land cruiser and drive out to road crashes so these guys are actually providing an ambulance service under their nursing banner and again a lot of this has happened in a very unstructured unregulated way there's a vast degree of heterogeneity in the equipment and the training available to these remote area nurses so one thing we're really keen especially in our partnership with the royal flying doctor service is to use that sandpiper equipment as a focus for standardised equipment and standardised training. So yes, long and short is we're open to all comers. We're really keen to enhance clinicians and community resilience where possible.
0: And the other thing that I think we're attaching growing significance to is having some sort of both debriefing in terms of of the technical aspects of the job but also having a support mechanism in place for responders because as you well know some of these jobs can be pretty harrowing and and you can end up in some situations where you're dealing with critically unwell children or whole families and when they're people that you know or involved within your community that can be very difficult to manage. Is that getting built in from the outset in Australia or is that something that you're going to sort of bolt on in time?
1: I think it's something that's growing organically and again we're very wary of these sort of ad hoc responses. Certainly in recent years, there's been a move to use some of the country fire service to respond to critical incidents because the the fire trucks carry a defibrillator. But we've had rather difficult situations where the rural fire service has been called to a pediatric cardiac arrest, which is really a, a hugely challenging situation because essentially there's no ambulance available. Now, this requires a very sensitive debrief and not surprisingly the crews who respond to this are traumatized so I think we need to get away from these ad hoc responses uh, make sure people are trained and equipped but then it build in debriefing and as you say both on the technical aspects I tend to use that self team environment patient matrix that that zero point survey works really well for mission debrief but also to look after the pastoral care of our clinicians so yes as we integrate with ambulance services that will become part and parcel of it
0: what do you see as being the main sticking point that's stopping this from blossoming? Because it, it sounds like everything there is, is very positive and, and it's all heading in the right direction. What's stopping this kind of evolving and stepping out into the whole of, of Australia?
1: I think there's two things, Dave. I think, first of all, there's been a, a very metrocentric lens with the way we view healthcare in Australia. That, that makes sense. as where most of the population are. They're mostly in the capital cities along the East Coast. But unfortunately, you know, food comes from rural areas that's where a significant population lives and we need to look after the rural communities so we need to think a little bit outside the cities so i guess one of the barriers has been persuading metro-based retrieval service colleagues that we need to think outside the box and utilize other capabilities the biggest problem though is we have multiple jurisdictions. We're a mishmash of different states and a couple of territories. So really this is like trying to get basic Scotland up across France, Germany, Lithuania, Norway, Ireland, and Portugal. Um, It's gonna be really (laughs) challenging. So the good news is we've got a, a network of rural doctors out there. We know who they are. We've got about 600 of them. We're keen to bolt on remote area nurses as well. And we're keen to let them drive this. So they'll they'll drive this in their own locations, essentially setting up responder schemes similar to the immediate care schemes under the basics umbrella. So I think we'll see it grow organically. As I said, we have got one system that's been running in South Australia 13 years now. We've got really good data about the sort of interventions that the clinicians provide, and we know the model value adds, Uh, it doesn't take away paramedic work, Uh, it just provides meaningful interventions before retrieval services arrive. So I think once people see that sort of data, uh, we hope to have it published fairly soon, then that's gonna be a little bit easier to make this a slam dunk. And sad though it is, we're also riding on the back end of massive bushfires 18 months ago. We lost half of Kangaroo Island was lost to bushfire and a fair proportion of the east coast of Australia. You may have seen some of this on the TV. Now the responses to that bushfire were again fairly ad hoc and I think at a government level it's realised that we do need to harness the primary care clinicians in rural areas who have got local knowledge and could be a focal point for disaster preparation planning and response. So there's some good that's come out of the bushfires. And I think there's much more appetite now to actually harness the rural generalist workforce to bolster ambulance
0: response. So, Tim, I've been asking all of our presenters to give us kind of three top tips. I guess what would your three things that you would suggest other folk could take away from your massive experience in terms of providing and setting up care within rural communities?
1: Yeah, and I'm sure what I have to offer will be very similar to what your your previous guests have said, because I think that there's some very central basic themes here the first is know know your local crews get involved with them train together do some simulation but it's really about social capital we're all there for the patients and the more that you know your local teams the more likely they are to call you so yes be a good person train with your local crews and make it fun so that's the first thing i guess the second is know your kit when we do our updates it's very obvious who, who hasn't Kept their bag up to date and is fumbling around so it's not quite like a marine rifle i'm not asking you to take your sandpipe back to bed with you but I, I do want you to have a good think about the layout and be really familiar so you can put your your hands on equipment where it's needed and the third thing i guess is form those relationships at a state and a national level be an advocate for change use the media use local politicians and use good news stories when there's a success yeah, you know, with patient consent, but try and use those stories to generate interest and again, funding.
0: Fantastic. Tim, that's brilliant. Thanks so much for sharing your expertise. And I'm certainly sat here in a slightly dirty Scotland, pretty jealous of, of what sounds like a, a brilliant lifestyle and some really challenging pre-hospital care in uh, a definitely warmer side of the world.
1: I'm very lucky, Dave, I've got a fantastic job, but I think, you know, there's so much similarity between what we do in rural Australia and what happens in Scotland. I think the only other place might be Canada, I'd be interested to see if they're going to get similar schemes up and running over the future, as far as I'm aware, they don't have this. But um, an open invitation to all of our colleagues in the UK, come and visit, and you're welcome to shadow what we do in rural journalism. It's an amazing job, and I think you guys would love it.
0: Fantastic. Tim, thanks so much for coming on to chat to us. Thanks, Dave. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.